0: with wonder open your bibles to matthew chapter 2 matthew chapter 2 and let's begin reading in the first verse i'm going to read this beautiful this beautiful story matthew chapter 2 verse 1 now after jesus was born in bethlehem of judea in the days of herod the king behold wise men came from the east to jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the jews for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream, here's dreams again, right? That they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country in another way. I want you to notice that they came into the house in verse 11 and not to the manger scene. Because the three, what we call them three, they're not numbered three, but they did bring three gifts, and they're not necessarily kings, they're magi. So they come from the east, and then they probably got there sometime after Jesus was born, maybe quite sometime after Jesus was born. Anyhow, I just wanted to ruin all of your Christmas images, <laughs> just to start this morning. So... The three kings around the manger, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be the way it went down. Sorry. I'll get on Santa Claus next. you want me to get on Santa Claus now? (laughs) Having mentioned an ancient saint, St. Nicholas was an ancient saint. I went through the Metropolitan Museum of Art this week and walking through there, they had an image of saint nicholas and there were three young boys like at his side and it was said that they were killed and thrown in a pickling jar and he raised them from the dead that's the legend but you know sometimes legend comes about by fact so saint nicholas isn't a magical figure that can't am i all right to say this am i going to ruin your children's lives if i do something like this today So he isn't a magical figure that comes back to visit us every year, but he was a real man of God who evidently, possibly raised at least three boys from the dead. I'd rather hear that story than some guy working with elves in the North Pole who only visits one house in a neighborhood because every time he comes out of the chimney, he takes off like lightning and doesn't go to the next house. Why did I say all this that I said? <laughs> Bethlehem, though, was a wonder. It's a wonder. Why did the Why was the Lord born in Bethlehem? Why did God choose that town of Bethlehem? I think it's. I think there's some great things to glean from this. I'm gonna give you three things that I see in this this morning. First of all, I think the fact that He was born in Bethlehem means that He would come in total humility that God would come in the form of a man in total humility. He wasn't born in the palaces of Rome. He wasn't born in the finest houses in Jerusalem. He wasn't born to wealthy parents. He wasn't born in pomp and circumstance. He wasn't born with parades and celebrations. He was born in a humble town of Bethlehem. And he was not only born there, he was born in a manger. And if any of you have been to Israel with me, we visited what potentially could have been the manger of the Lord, which was an actual, an actual cave. Because at night, the Middle Eastern shepherds would put their animals in the cave, basically. And it was a, like a ready-made, natural-made stable for them. So they could find no place to stay, so they just stayed with the animals, and they had him there. And why did God do this? Why would it be so much so much humility so much of this wrapped around I, you know and i just have to I, I just think god planned it that way he planned it that way so you and i could relate to god because he didn't just jump out of heaven lightnings and thunders and crashings and all that announcing that god has come to earth it didn't happen that way he came in the most humble of circumstances and so god comes to us in any season of life in any circumstance in life. It doesn't matter if you were born in wealth or born in poverty, if you were born in America or born somewhere else, if you were born on the right side of the tracks or the wrong side of the tracks, if you use good English or you use hillbilly Appalachian English. It doesn't matter. God has come and he, He's come to all people. This is the beauty of Bethlehem that God has come in humble circumstances. No wonder Paul could use... This as an example later in Philippians to bring unity in the church. He said, let this same mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a man and humbled himself even unto death. Paul said, how about having that attitude when you deal with each other? Take on the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, who became the lowest of all. You know, Jesus in his ministry reached out to people on the margins. He had women in his ministry. I don't know, he reached out to women. There were people who, the women were the first ones to hear the gospel. The women's were the, the women, the women's. See, right there. That hooked on phonics does not work, I'm telling you. the women the women were the last at the tomb sorry last at the cross and first at the tomb amen He he took in some that were evidently of skeptical backgrounds and used them he ministered to Gentiles he ministered to the Syrophoenician lady who came and begged for her daughter to be healed he ministered to the centurion servant who was an Italian and not a Jew he He went to the city of the the country of the Gadarenes, and the Gadarenes was kind of a Gentile area. No wonder they had pigs over there. He could cast the demons in the pigs. It was a Gentile area. He went and ministered to those folks. And then he ministered to the tax collectors. He told Zacchaeus to come down out of the tree, and he said, I'm going to your house. He was a tax collector. Matthew, who's writing this gospel, was a tax collector. They were hated in ancient Israel. They were some of the most hated people in the community. And he still ministered to them. He ministered to lepers. You weren't supposed to touch a leper. Jesus ministered to them. At one point, he heals a leper. Mark chapter 2, another point, 10 lepers come and get healed. One came back to give thanks. Remember the story? On and on and on again. It was like, who is this guy? He's not just staying with one class. He's not just staying with one crowd. He's ministering to all people. And even in His genealogy, in the book of Matthew, are some fascinating people in His family tree. And I know none of y'all have questionable people in your family tree. I want to read it. Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's reaching the Jews, we believe, Matthew was. So he starts with David and starts with Abraham, right? Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and Judah his brothers. How many stopped reading the Bible at this point? (laughs) Judah begot Perez and by Tamar! Who was Tamar? She was a daughter-in-law of Judah... But her husband died, and according to Jewish law, she was supposed to get one of the brothers. Thank God those laws don't work anymore. But she was supposed to get one of the brothers to take her in. He didn't do it, so she disguised herself as a prostitute. And had a child by Judah, her father-in-law. Well... Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Amenadab and Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. She wasn't pretending to be a prostitute. She was the authentic item. If I'm understanding my Bible correctly, Boaz came from Rahab. This has got, I don't know, anyhow, let's go on. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth and Obed begot Jesse and Jesse begot David the king and David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who had been the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. What did she do? She's not the poster child for the International Pentecostal Holiness Church, I can tell you that. (laughs) She committed adultery with David. Why am I saying all this? Why did Matthew put these things in there? That's my big question. Why did Matthew put these in the Bible? I think he wanted to show us, number one, that God can bring something beautiful out of failure or out of questionable backgrounds i I think it's number one that god's a god of a second chance oh hallelujah how many can wave at me and thank god for the second chance he's a god of a second chance that even these people who had a questionable background end up in the genealogy of jesus isn't that amazing questionable background end up in the genealogy of jesus okay number two do you know that ruth was a, a gentile that tamar was a gentile and they didn't mention bathsheba by name but they mentioned her husband's name because he was a gentile he was a Heatite. so we have three gentiles here in the genealogy of jesus meaning he has come not only to reach jews He has come to reach the Gentiles and He has come to reach those outside the purview of the Jewish nation and He has come in humble circumstances to be able to do that. Can somebody lift your hand and just say, thank God He came for me. Humility. It speaks of humility. speaks of ultimate humility. Second thing I think Bethlehem tells me is that Jesus would be a kinsman redeemer. What is a kinsman redeemer? In the Old Testament, there's this law of the kinsman redeemer. It comes from the Hebrew term goel, which means to redeem. And the kinsman redeemer was a person that could do numerous things in redeeming a family situation if something went down bad. Think of the story of Ruth. So Ruth is with her mother-in-law with her father-in-law, her brother and sister-in-law, and her husband in Moab. She, getting along fine, marries into this Jewish family. Then her, brother, her husband dies, her brother-in-law dies, and her father-in-law dies. All that's left is Ruth, her mother-in-law, and a sister-in-law. Ruth's mother-in-law named Naomi gathered the girls together and said, girls, go, go to your home. Go back to your families." Let your family take care of you. Because it was an issue for a woman to be taken care of in the ancient world. It just was. So the other sister-in-law left, but Ruth looked at her mother-in-law and said, I'm not leaving. Wherever you go, I'm going. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. All that jazz that we say in weddings. So she comes back to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, and they're evidently broke and can't survive But her mother-in-law knows the law of the kinsman redeemer. And her mother-in-law knows that there's a wealthy man who has plenty of fields and resources and he has a kinsman redeemer kin to her husband. So you got to get someone from the husband's family who can come and redeem this whole situation. So she tells her, (laughs) I told the first service, she told her go to Sephora and get all you need and let's go over to TJ Maxx because we don't have a lot of money. And let's find the outfits you need. And then you go to Boaz's field and you show up and make yourself known. So what happens, she goes there and she starts gleaning, according to the Old Testament rule of gleaning. She starts gleaning and then Boaz spots her and Boaz favors her and gives her more. Then eventually her and Boaz end up in a scene together. Something happens in this scene that they fall for each other or some chemistry is working. So Boaz is like, oh my gosh, i got to get this right. So he says, there's one guy closer to to you than me in, in, in marriage. Let me go talk to him tomorrow morning. So he gets up, he goes to the city gate, he meets that guy, the guy agrees, he goes back, he marries Ruth takes her in as the kinsman redeemer. After taking her in, then at the end of the book, it's not about Ruth anymore, it's about the mother-in-law. She's sitting there holding their baby, Obed. And Obed has is now the blessing and now Naomi is blessed and highly favored and has all the respect of her friends back. They're taken care of because the kinsman redeemer came and redeemed this whole situation. Now listen to this. In ancient Israel law, the kinsman redeemer would come if anyone was in poverty in their family and was unable to redeem their inheritance. The kinsman redeemer could come and make sure they would get their true inheritance. I'm assuming here he's come into the inheritance of Ruth and Naomi's husbands and redeemed it for them. Redeem them out of poverty. I'm gonna say it to this church over here. Redeem them out of poverty. (laughs) Second, he was required to redeem his relative who had sold himself into slavery. So he had the power to redeem a relative who had sold themselves into slavery. Had sold themselves into slavery. Okay. Y'all getting the picture here. And then finally, the kinsman redeemer was the avenger of blood. So if someone in the family was killed, it was an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, the kinsman redeemer could go after that murderer himself. That's why ancient Israel had cities of refuge. If you had killed somebody like accidentally, you better get to the city of refuge because you were open game as long as you were walking the streets. That's crazy, I know, but that's the way it rolled. So I just can't help but think the kinsman redeemer was a type and shadow of Jesus who was to come. That Jesus now has come and purchased us out of spiritual poverty. And now we no longer have to be broke and destitute spiritually anymore because He's come and redeemed us from the curse. Secondly of all, He's come and redeemed us from the bondage and slavery of sin. I couldn't buy my way out of it. I couldn't get those chains off of me. I couldn't get that burden off my back. But one came greater than I, my big brother, my kinsman redeemer, and purchased my my life, hallelujah, and broke off the chains of slavery set the prison bars free. Uh, He told me I could go and I could run just as hard because I was free from sin and all the effects. Oh, somebody shout hallelujah. And then he shows up and he pays a blood debt that no man could pay, that no angel could pay. No... No other power could pay. Only blood could atone for my sin. Only blood could redeem me and save me. Only blood could give me a ticket to heaven. Only blood could sanctify me and set me apart as a saint. My God, somebody, Jesus came as the kinsman redeemer and bought us back. Hallelujah. It wasn't with unprecious or or cheap things that you were bought. It was with the precious blood of the lamb. You've been purchased. Hallelujah. And now we're standing here. Today we're not perfect, but we're forgiven, and we're blood bought, and we're set apart. Oh, hallelujah! Somebody might as well give him a shout of praise. (laughs) Hallelujah! Come on, this is what Christmas is about, right here. This is what it's about, right here. Thank God for the hymns and the lights and the presents and the thank God for the candy. But it's a lot, about a lot more than that. It's we've been purchased with a price. That babe that came down in a manger, yeah, no wonder the world doesn't want it. Why? Because it can change the world. No wonder the devil doesn't want him in the public square. Why? Because he hates it. He hated that day. Herod tried to kill every child that could could be the Lord. He tried to kill every one of them possessed by a demonic spirit. Why? Because he wanted to thwart, wanted to abort the mission of God. But God had wisdom far beyond any of the principalities and powers. And God had it figured out. Matter of fact, God even signaled what He was going to do hundreds and hundreds of years ago through the prophet Micah and said Bethlehem is going to be the place where I'm going to let the Savior come, the kinsman redeemer come, Take that devil. <laughs> somebody shout hallelujah. <laughs> oh yeah. Turn around somebody and say just Merry Christmas to you. It means he was humble means he was our kinsman redeemer. And finally, Bethlehem was the city of the king. Bethlehem's the city of David. There are two city of Davids in Scripture, but it's, that's the, the OG city of David. It's the original city of David. Okay. So if you go back into the book of Samuel, you know that Bethlehem was the home of Jesse. Wonder why? Because his grandmother was Ruth. That's why they're in Bethlehem. So David would have been the great-grandson of Ruth. Isn't that wild? So when Saul failed God as the king of Israel, the prophet Samuel was just grieving over this because he loved Saul and he's the one that called Saul and he invested a lot in Saul. And God basically said, stop crying and get up. I've left Saul. Stop crying and go anoint the next king of Israel. So he goes down to Bethlehem and he walks in the town. The people are afraid. Why? Because you stand against the prophet of God, there were people that would die. I mean, read the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament. Absolutely amazing. So he walks in, he comes to Jesse's house and he says, hey, um, bring out your sons. All, All Samuel knew was that he was to go there and anoint the next king, he didn't know who it would be. And so Jesse brings out all these sons. And here they are, oldest to the youngest. And Samuel looks at the oldest, and he says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is the guy. And he gets up close to him, and he hears a no. No, this isn't it. Then he goes to the next one. surely this is the Lord's anointed. And he gets up close to him, and he hears a no. And he just, no, 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 no. And he looks at Jesse, and he says, do you have any other kids? That's a confident man of God. Some of us would have got to the last and went, well, we must have missed God. I'm going to go back home and pray a little more. He didn't do that. He knew do you have any? He said, well, there's one more. It's David. He's out watching the sheep. Why wasn't he invited to the party is what I want to know. People have preached theories on that, but it's, these theories aren't Bible. But anyhow, so they bring David in. And when he comes in, Samuel's like, the Lord's anointed is before me. And he takes the horn of oil And he pours the oil over David. And the the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came on him that day. Next verse or two, it says, and the Spirit left Saul. There was a divine exchange. It's like a turnstile. Boom. God anointed one and lifted it from the other. And then the Spirit of the Lord came on David from that day forward. And then we don't hear about David again. And David doesn't speak. He doesn't speak until there's a battle with a giant Philistine called Goliath. And it says David shows up an Ephrathite from Bethlehem. Right down the line of Obed and Jesse and Ruth. Right down the line. He comes out of that city and he comes up to the battlefield and he says, what will be the reward for the person who kills this goon? Can I use that in church? I don't even know. I don't even know. Somebody's going to correct me, I'm sure. But. And his brother says, well, aren't you the nosy one? Why don't you go back home and stay out of our business? He says, is there not a cause? Are you guys here? Is there, isn't there something? Isn't there some payoff to this thing if I'm going to risk my life? That's the first we hear of the king. And then he steps on the battlefield, being a youth, and kills the greatest giant of the Philistine army. Friends, that's why Ruth is in the Bible. It shows us where David came from, the king. I'm telling you, when Jesus was born, he was born in the most humble of circumstances. But everyone, the angels knew, the magi knew, the shepherds in the field knew, this is the king of kings. This is the king of the Jews. This is the Messiah that we've waited on. For centuries and centuries, Israelites, the prophets had foretold it. The people had looked forward to an ultimate king. Of the line and of the species and quality of David. That a king would come with that kind of authority and that kind of power. But this king would do even more and be even greater that he would be the one who would be the ultimate anointed one in hebrew the term anointing means is is mashiach and so they said, this is guy, This is the guy who will be the Messiah. He will be the Messiah. He will be the one upon whom the Lord's anointing rests upon. So it's prophetic. It's amazing when Jesus shows up at the River Jordan that day and John the Baptist is baptizing and he looks and he sees Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That guy saw that when Jesus I mean all these hundreds of people he sees him and he knows now the Lord's anointed the Messiah, the ultimate king coming out of Nazareth coming out of a humble family. He's the one that's going to take away all the sin of the world. Hallelujah. That's what Christmas is about. The king has come. The king has come. The Messiah has come. They tried to make him king in uh, in an unnatural and and in a shortcut manner, many times in Scripture, even when Satan came to him in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he had fasted. Satan came to him and tried to get him to show off his power in an unauthorized way or just to be a display. And Jesus said, no, I'm not doing that, man. Make these stones bread. No, I'm living on the Word of God. Cast yourself down from the mountain. No, I'm not tempting the Lord my God. Fall down and worship me. No, I'm only going to worship the Father in heaven. That's it. I mean, every point. He did not take a detour. Then in John chapter 6, when he fed the 5,000, the Bible says they were desiring to make him king. They wanted him to be the Messiah now. Be the king now. Go to Jerusalem now. Take the sword up and get on a horse and take this thing back over from the Romans now. And he said, nope. He dispersed the crowd, sent his disciples away on a boat and went up to the mountain alone with the Father to pray then later on Caesarea Philippi Matthew chapter 16 but he said whom do men say that I the son of man am and Peter said "Some Peter said you are the Christ the Messiah The, the Christ is the Christos is the Latinized or the, the Greek form rather of the Hebrew Messiah he said you are the Messiah you're the one we've been waiting for he said flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you Peter but my father which is in heaven a great moment and then he starts telling them of what how he must suffer and how he must be betrayed by the high priests and the the Pharisees and then Peter stands up and says no let's take an exit let's take a shortcut so this doesn't happen let's do not do this let's go now and take over and he said get behind me He realized the temptation to to shortcut his destiny. And then even, I think, in Garden of Gethsemane, when he's there praying the night he's arrested, he's wrestling with all that he's going to face. But yet at the end, he says, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And he gives his will over to the Father, goes to the cross, and dies the death of a common criminal. because he had a plan to become king that others didn't understand. But then on the third day, he rose from the dead. Then he ascended to the Father on high. And now, uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, now he's proven to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. So now he's proven to be the Son of God. So what's this mean, Hans, and where are you going? I'm telling you, he is now king of all the universe and all the spirit realm. But the Bible says he is coming again. This time he won't come as a lamb, he's going to come as a lion. This time he's not coming to a humble stable in Bethlehem. He's coming and going to set his foot on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah 14 and split the mountain in two the Bible said there's going to be a shout and there's going to be a trumpet sound and then the eastern sky is going to split and the Lord's going to appear the those that have died in Christ in the graves are going to rise and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air Paul said we all shall be changed because this mortal shall put on immortality hallelujah this is going to put on the supernatural. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to tell the old existence goodbye. And we're going to be resurrected to new life. And the Messiah is coming. The King is coming. Come on, you better get your house in order because the King is coming. He could come today. He could come tomorrow. He could come next month. He could come next year. I don't know, but I want to be watching. And I want to be waiting. And I want to be and I want to be living at the foot of the cross and I want to be ready when he calls me up come on somebody give him a praise much anymore because I'm too satisfied on this earth. But I got a whole lot waiting on me over there and I can't wait hallelujah till I see him face to face. I've served him for 36 years and I've never seen Him in the flesh, but one day I'm going to see Him face to face. Hallelujah. And to do that, I need a resurrected body because I don't think I could handle in this flesh the full glory of God. But when He comes and He resurrects my body and He changes me into His image, then He brings me into His presence. I'm going to see Him. Hallelujah. I'm going to see Him according to First Corinthians 13. I'm going to know as I know... We'll see Him face to face. What a day it's going to be. Come on. The King is coming. Come on. Shout it out with me. The King is coming. Democrats or Republicans. Thank God. There's not going to be any more governments, no more presidents, and no more potentates and no more governors and God's going to come himself. You know, we're not going to stay in heaven. It's called the intermediate state in theology. We're going to go up there and then we're coming back. The Bible says that he'll come on a white horse, Revelation 19, with ten thousands of his saints. He'll set his foot on earth, set his kingdom in Jerusalem. I'm old school. I still believe in a thousand-year millennial reign that we're coming back to rule and reign with Christ. And he will enter in. And he will go right across the Kidron Valley, up to the Mount of of Jerusalem and go right through the eastern gate which no one has been able to go through in centuries and he'll take his rightful place as the king of the world right there in Jerusalem no wonder Isaiah said in Isaiah 2 that let us go to the house of the Lord let all the nations come and learn of the law of the Listen, I want to see you there. I want to shout on the streets of Jerusalem in the millennial reign with the Messiah Himself. Oh, come on, somebody give Him praise. Thank you so much for joining us online, and I hope the message was a real blessing to you. You know, eternity is a real thing. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. According to the scriptures, you spend eternity in one of two places. First of all, heaven. Paul said to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Or number two, in hell. Uh, Jesus talked about the rich man who went to hell and was in great torment. He was begging Abraham to send someone, a messenger, to tell his family. Well listen, you're hearing the message today, eternity is real and you're going to spend it in one of two places. So why don't let's decide right now, me and you, that you're going to spend it in heaven. How do you do that? You accept Jesus into your heart. Open up your heart and say, Lord, come in. Cleanse me of all sin. I accept you as my Lord and take the throne of my life as yours. Okay? So let's pray right now. Just pray with me right where you are. Just repeat this. Father in heaven, I I remove myself from the throne of my heart. And Jesus, I invite you to sit on the throne of my heart. Forgive me of all sin. Wash me in your precious blood. And I accept your sacrifice for me. And I thank you, Lord, for cleansing me, for saving me, and for accepting me. In Jesus' name I pray. Can you say amen right where you're at? Hey, thank you for joining us. And please come back. Get in, get in the Word, get in the flow of the Spirit, and uh, we're just blessed to have you with us and look forward to seeing you the next time.